Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hey, welcome along to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Monday, February 5th, and I'm still, as you can see, not in the regular studio, although I've had a lot of praise for the uh, Klaus Schwab chair that I've been using for the last week on the program. So maybe I'll have to find a way to smuggle this back into my bag when I return from Washington, D.C. I have been covering the climate change free speech trial of Mark Stein. We'll have a, a bit of an update on that with Phelan McAleer a little bit later on in the show. We'll also have Chris Sims and the latest installment of our Unjust Transition series. A bit of a busy show to start the week, but I wanted to begin following up on the policy that was announced that has sent a wave of discontent by the establishment and the left, but a wave of something far more positive to a lot of people. And I mentioned last week that I would be spending a bit more time on it this week, just because last week with all these uh, conflicting uh, priorities and other things we had to cover, I, I didn't have a chance to dig into this to the way that I wanted. And I should also tell you, on, I believe, Wednesday's show, I'm going to have a, a sit-down with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith on this, uh, specifically uh, this as well as uh, a couple of other issues. So that's going to be coming up this week, which was also part of the reason I, I wanted to kick off this show, talking about the announcement last week in support of parental rights, but also in opposition to a lot of the more radical transgender ideology we've seen being passed off as policy by activists. Here was a little bit of Danielle Smith's announcement. After much discussion, the government caucus and I have therefore decided to implement the following policies and guidelines as it relates to transgender minors and athletes, including additional supports to assist transgender adults to secure the health care they need and the counselling support for youth identifying as transgender to ensure they can successfully work their way through their complex feelings and emotions as they grow to adulthood. First, on the issue of gender reassignment treatments for minors. For minors age 17 and under, top and bottom gender reassignment surgeries will not be permitted. For children age 15 and under, puberty blockers and hormone therapies for the purpose of gender reassignment or affirmation will also not be permitted, with the exception of those who've already commenced their treatment at this time. Now, no sensible person who hears that would hear rabid, ideological, unhinged, or callous rhetoric. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You listen to Premier Danielle Smith, you get a profound sense of compassion. She's not taking a stab at what any individual grown-ups do. She's talking about children and minors. She's talking about the importance of waiting and seeing instead of just plowing ahead with irreversible surgery. And yes, irreversible hormone therapy, which some people are trying to say is not the case, but it is. And many experts have said these treatments can have irreversible consequences. And then she's talking in the context of the education system about parental rights. So what the Alberta government has done has actually gone far beyond, in a lot of ways, what has been proposed in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, which may be why it took the Alberta government so long to really come out with a cogent and cohesive policy on this. But what credit does Danielle Smith get for trying to be moderate and nuanced and measured? None. This is NDP MLA Janice Irwin crying as she talks about this as though it is an existential threat to trans youth in Alberta. To all the queer and trans youth out there, 
just know that you are so loved and we're going to be with you for every step of this fight. We love you so much. Now, obviously, this is a very raw subject emotionally for Janice Irwin. I don't want to take away from what's a very real pain that Janice seems to be experiencing there, but it is very much misplaced. We saw Randy Boissonneau, the Liberal Member of Parliament from Edmonton, talk about this as being the NATO moment, as though we need some collective defense on behalf of all LGBT people in Alberta and Canada. Marcy Ian said she spent the whole night after Danielle's announcement consoling gay and trans youth on the phone as though people were hearing what Danielle Smith said and the first thing they do is say, I want to talk to a liberal cabinet minister. I know that's where I go if I'm feeling a little bit dis, uh, discontented with the world. So look, there, there are very real policy debates to be had here. I know uh, one activist, uh, Chanel Fall, who is a former teacher in Ontario, was concerned that Danielle Smith did not go far enough. She was saying that Danielle Smith was trying to make nice with people for whom there is no middle ground, for whom there can never be any sense of compromise. And I think the reaction to Danielle Smith has probably been uh, making that clear if anyone was not already uh, aware of it. But at the same time, I think Danielle Smith has put forward a policy that she believes in. This is, I think, very important. She is not a social conservative. She's not approaching this issue from the perspective of a faith basis. She's not approaching it from the perspective of, of transphobia. In fact, I was, you know, on a radio panel with her once when she was talking about how much she loved Caitlyn Jenner. So uh, Danielle Smith is, I think, the perfect messenger for a policy like this because she's not coming at it from a place of anything other than, I think, common sense and representing her constituents, representing parents in Alberta. And by the way, just to stress this point, the policies that she's proposed are incredibly popular. Back in August, there was an Angus Reid poll that found about 78% of memory serve, 78% of parents believe that they should have to consent to their child changing their name or gender in school. 78%. Like, do you realize how difficult it is to find a coalition on a political issue in this country that has three quarters to four fifths of the country already on side? That is incredible. So that proves that this is beyond a left-right issue. This is one that parents of all different political stripes believe in. There's, it's not about tolerance. It's not about respect. It's not about diversity. It's just about do parents have a right to have a say in their child's education and what's going on with their child in school? Do you want a world in which teachers are the secret keepers of children and youth? Teachers, government employees, do you want them to be the secret keepers? Absolutely not, is what the majority of parents say. So let's not pretend that what Danielle Smith is saying here is radical or offside with where Canadians are. And I think if the Liberals want to make this their NATO moment, if Janice Irwin wants to get in front of a lectern or a microphone rather and start crying about this, I think they're going to look like the radicals. They are going to look like the ones here that Canadians take significant issues with, not the other way around. We'll have more on this tomorrow and certainly more on this Wednesday with Premier Danielle Smith. But as promised, I wanted to do a bit of an update on this uh, trial that's been going on now. It's in its fourth week. It was supposed to have been wrapped up on Thursday of last week originally, but it's just been a glacially slow process by now. I won't be able to even make it to the end of it because I've got to get back to interview Danielle Smith, among other things. I'm getting a little homesick, so I'll be heading out uh, soon. But I do want to get to the crux of what's happening here because 
The theme last week when I was doing my daily updates was that we have a defamation case in which there has been scant evidence, if any, that defamation has occurred. Defamation has a legal test that must be followed. And one critical component of that test is that you have to show, if you are suing someone for defamation, that you have suffered, that you have incurred what are called damages. We can't really point to any damages in this case that Michael Mann has raised that he can attribute to that blog post by Mark Stein and Rand Simberg, the two blog posts rather, which has been why this has been such a perplexing case, especially for a Canadian who's here covering some foreign judicial proceeding. But uh, one way I have been keeping apprised has been through Anne McElhenney and Phelan McAleer's uh, fantastic podcast, Climate Change on Trial. We had Phelan on last week to talk about this, and I thought we'd bring him back for an update on where things stand. Phelan, good to talk to you again. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Now, let's just start with how the process is the punishment here, because uh, this was supposed to be done by now. Uh, this was supposed to be wrapped up after three weeks. It was, uh, you know, 12 years in the making. Uh, but the process has just been glacial. And I, I'm wondering if you could speak to this a little bit, because the judge was saying on Thursday that he still expects to have this uh, wrapped up and done and sent to the jury by Wednesday morning of this week. But the problem with that, of course, is that uh, the plaintiff's side, Michael Mann, had uh, effectively unlimited time to make its case. And now the defense is being told, you've got to keep this tight. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it struck me as really unfair that Michael Mann was able to eat into Mark Stein and Rand Simberg's time. Uh, and therefore, they have to squeeze their, their defense uh, of these uh, allegations into a few days, you know. And, uh, you know, the judge has been, I mean, if I hear one more word about the NSF report, um, I mean, this has just been the, the, the report that will not die. Um, and he keeps letting them bring it up. He keeps saying it can't be in, it can be in, it can't be in, it can be in, but why haven't you got someone to authenticate it? Um, and, you know, if, if he'd just make a decision, also, it's a personal bugbear of ours, but the jury is constantly late. Mm -hmm. The jury is always half an hour late. And, you know, certain members of the jury are always late. And, you know, I don't know about Canada, but I know in the UK or Ireland, you know, they would have sheriff's deputies or police officers outside the jurors' houses ready to take them in on a bench warrant or they'd be fined or they'd be sequestered if they were consistently late. So it's a um, man is, is, is using the process to punish, but he's been assisted by the weak judicial system. Yeah, and, and you had people uh, like Judith Curry, who at the end of it got to testify for, I don't know, like half an hour mm -hmm. on Thursday, that were waiting all week because yes. they had expected they would be testifying in the time allocated for the defense. So uh, very disruptive, very costly. But uh, so just enough about the process here. I, I want to talk about the MVP of the week or MBW, Most Valuable Witness, Abraham Weiner. Oh, yeah. Uh, this guy, I mean, you're, you're poor. Uh, well, you're, you're the poor guy because your wife just fell in love with Abraham Weiner. Uh, this is the professor of statistics that I desperately wish I had as my professor of statistics when I was in university. He knew how to talk about this in very complex stuff in incredibly relatable terms. He was talking about it as sports, as music, as um, what else? He was talking, well, he talked about, you know, polling in the 2016 exactly. presidential yeah. election. 
captured the jury's attention and said, yeah, uh, Michael Mann's work is misleading. He, he said, you know, I don't know his state of mind. I don't know why, but it's clearly misleading. It's clearly manipulative. And, and then when Michael Mann's lawyer was cross-examining him, I, I, just, I couldn't even follow along with what the argument or line of questioning was. Could you? No, no. Um, and I don't think the jury could either. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you, I know there are a lot of lawyers in that court. I, I just hope at the end I'm not looking for a divorce lawyer because my wife has... <laughs> My wife has, Anne McHenney, has fallen in love with uh, Abraham Weiner. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, when you saw Michael Mann on the stand and you saw John Abraham on the stand, there was a plausibility to them. You know, John Abraham, just for, for people that weren't following, was the expert. Wit well, sorry, they tried to call him as an expert witness. Michael Mann did, but they wouldn't certify him as an expert witness. Right. Yeah. So, you know, they, they had a a patina of, you know, I'm an academic, kind of absent-minded. I'm, I'm kind of slightly unworldly. I don't know what a 501c3 is, even though I set one up myself. Um, so they had that patina. But then when, when Abraham Weiner got up, you realize, ah, this is a, this is a real professor. This is a real lecturer. Hmm. I want to, I'm literally, I felt like saying to him, how can I get to do classes at the Wharton School of Business? Because I want to hear you in full, um, I want to be taught by you. I want to learn things from you. So, yeah, look, as he says, I don't know the, 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 what was in Michael Mann's mind, but he said it was manipulative. And he's talking about it from a scientific point of view, manipulative. And, you know, very simple. If you know your end, what he was pointing out, everyone knew what the temperature records were from thermometers, right? So, uh, he said, then you make a series of choices to get to that record. You make a series of choices. If you want to get a hockey stick, you make a series of small, tiny choices that get you a flat hockey blade to the hockey, not blade, stick to the hockey stick, whatever, handle. Handle, yeah, the handle. Listen, listen, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, know much sports, it's okay. I don't know much about your foreign games, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I sound like Mark Stein now. But um, so... You make these choices, and then then uh, man's counsel tried to say to him, but uh, Cole and and uh, man they they replicated the hockey stick, and he was going, yeah, that was supposed to be an independent replication. And here are all these emails where they communicated, and he says, doesn't matter what they communicated, the actual act of communicating means it's not independent. And number two, there are. You say there are small differences. There shouldn't be any differences because it was a replication process. And the thing you think is small in 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 terms of statistics is massive. And it's like, okay, you know, uh, Mr. Weiner, I, I think sometimes he might have lost the jury only in cross-examination when he's been asked highly technical mm -hmm. questions that I don't really see the point of. But I, I definitely very impressed. The jury was very impressed with him. They took a lot of notes when he was talking. And as you say, he talked about sports. He talked about politics. He talked about cold medicines, you know. Yes, uh, yes. Fallacies, you know, things we think are, are ESP, you know, there's studies to show ESP exists. And he pointed out how that is it's the same fallacy that made the hockey stick exist, that you pick your data and not maybe not consciously, maybe consciously. Uh, he couldn't get into Michael Mann's mind, but he under, he recognized the process. And 
He actually said, I don't care about climate change. I just looked at it as a statistical problem. And he was going, and it's a massive problem. It's a, that's what makes it so much fun. Like getting yeah. the last thousand years of temperature, it's a huge problem for statisticians. Like, and he was so excited because this, for him, this was like, this was a Christmas present. You know, he had all this data yeah. and, all, you know. But, 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 that, it, but that's why his testimony was, was so pure, Phelan, because he's not in this as an activist. I mean, you could argue that Michael Mann and Mark Stein are, are activists for their own camps. He didn't have one. He was there because he thought it was a fascinating mathematical problem, and he did mm -hmm. what you're supposed to do. He, he put the numbers in. And, and what was interesting, too, is that he accepted, and he made a point of this a few times, he accepted at face value the validity of the data. He said, let's just assume that man's raw data were what they are, which is not a given. But from his perspective, he was only interested in if we take the figures man uses, what do those figures do? And, and that was, I think, very compelling and, and I think very believable and credible to the jury because he's saying, I took his numbers and I came up with all of these different outcomes. The same That's numbers right. came out with these different outcomes. That's right. and, and he said, are all from a mathematical perspective equally valid? That doesn't mean they're equally true but they're equally valid. So man's option is just one of many things that the same inputs can show on the back end. And I, yeah. I look, I'm not a math guy. I'm not a stats guy, but I understood that. And I think the jury did as well. Yeah, I mean, remember the, the, the graph was, was put up and it's, he says, you can use the figures to get, uh, to get a hockey, you know, a stick, a, a look, a graph that looks like this, as in the, 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 the stick of the hockey stick wasn't wasn't flat it was like this and yeah. the, the last bit went up like that and uh, and we had this ridiculous back and forth where coin oh, yeah. and lawyer was trying to say but that's a hockey stick <laughs> and i'm going yeah they're trying to say that all of these are hockey they're literally yes. debating this this would happen they're debating whether it was they, they were all versions of hockey sticks yes and and i don't know much as i say i don't know much about hockey but i think the blade in a hockey stick has to be flat all the mm -hmm. way along and then the last bit has to incline upwards you know it can't the, the the handle can't incline downwards talk about hide the decline we're talking about hiding the incline actually uh, uh... <laughs> that's fair i like that that's very good i we, one of the things this week that was because this was my first week in the courtroom so you you've seen a lot of this but it, it seemed like there was a lot more procedural stuff and and sometimes this procedural stuff was you know very i, I think useless. It was just basically, I think, the plaintiff trying to run out the clock, which they did in a lot of ways. Uh, but we also saw some motions where it, it looked like the, the case for Michael Mann was on very thin ice with the judge. And I, I should just say, we're, we're recording this uh, before Monday. It's going to air on Monday. Uh, I mean, theoretically, there may not be a, a trial on Monday, depending on what happens. Yeah, there, there, are, there are two motions, really, that, that could uh, end this case really before the defense case gets going. There's a, a motion to, to dismiss because there's not enough evidence to bring it before the jury. And uh, the, the mainstay of that is Michael Mann has not proven any damages. That's an essential part. And he hasn't proven any malice either. Those are the two mainstays actually. And malice doesn't mean uh, we all don't like Michael Mann and therefore we were motivated by malice. No, malice means that you printed a fact that was wrong and at the time you printed it, you knew it to be wrong. And or, or at least or at least had enough doubt about it. Yes, yeah. we're, we're reckless, I think was the word. So Mark Stein says, I have been saying the hockey stick was wrong since the year 2000 and, and, and produced, uh, produced articles in the Daily Telegraph saying that. 
and and you know I I still say the hockey stick was wrong. Uh, it's not and it's not malice to say that. I, and I'm not motivated by malice. I'm motivated by by belief and opinion and fact. And then the 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 second part of it was man has not been damaged. There are no damages, and in fact his career has gone up and up and up, and. Really, that's where it got interesting because it's true, right? His salary increased, his book royalties increased, his celebrity hitch count increased. You know, he was hanging with Hill, Bill and mm-hmm. Al and Leo, a bromance. He actually said, I have a bromance with Leo Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> like, those are the words he used. Um, so his celebrity hitch count has gone up. And I think in their desperation to prove damages, I think man's side... Uh, overstepped and overreached and produced to the jury a document. So I don't want to get into too much detail, but in 2020, Mann uh, produced this document saying, I've lost zillions of dollars in grant money or pen. Uh, and, and, you know, I lost this $9 million grant, for example. Then three, two years later, he, re, he looked at, you know, he, he, as the trial was approaching, he thought, hmm, that was okay for example, but he said it under pain of perjury. Then he had to revise his figure, and this nine million dollar grant, which was going to Penn State, not Michael Mann, was downgraded to a one hundred and twelve thousand dollar grant. Right? Um, you know who hasn't lost nine million dollars under pain of perjury in a document? You know it's happened to us all. The nine million dollar man, and he, he, so this was a, but. Man's lawyers produced the $9 million document with all the fake numbers in it to the jury, right? And the judge said he was, and this is a quote, stunned to see mm-hmm. this. Um, and Mark Stein and Delacroix for Ransomberg have, have put in motions to the, to the court saying, on top of everything else, this is another reason why this case needs to be ended now. And if it doesn't need to be ended, we need to um, exclude all this nonsense about grant money. It's polluted. Yeah. It's it, it didn't make any sense anyway, but now it's polluted nonsense. And the jury shouldn't be even allowed to talk about it. Or think well, about it. And, and this is the problem. I mean, I, I was reading, because it is kind of absurd. A lot happens during the course of a day where, you know, someone asks a question, you get objection. The They, they all, it, it's actually kind of interesting to watch. They all put the headphones on, mm-hmm. uh, the lawyers and the judge, and they put this white noise into the room so yeah. that the jury can't hear this what's called a bench conference and then you know the judge will say overruled or sustained and, and if it's sustained he'll have to say to the jury disregard what you've yes. just heard it's all nonsense that yes. juries are incapable of just unhearing something yes. and, and typically uh when something you're told to disregard something if anything it highlights it to you so uh i i find it hard to believe that this wasn't deliberate to put these numbers before the jury Mm-hmm. knowing that those numbers will stick with the jury. And even if they are eventually told to disregard it, that has, uh, it's polluted the evidence. But as you say, it's also polluted the jury. Yes. Uh, you know, and look, far be it for me to criticize Mark Stein, but I think every every team has been at that, uh, asking questions that they know will be objected to. And, um, <laughs> and the judge saying, disregard that thing and, so every side has had a little smile on their face. As yes. well. Oh, I didn't mean to. Yeah. Oops. Oh, shucks. Oh, gee golly. I'm sorry, Your Honor. <laughs> even though we discussed this for two hours this morning, how it was, we were all banned from saying this. It accidentally slipped out, right? Yeah. So, 
Every side has been guilty of that, but no side has put fake documents before the jury. That's that's a step ahead, right? There's a you know there's gamesmanship, uh, and then there's uh, uh, putting perjured, you know, man filled in the first document under pain of perjury. He did a bit of, he did a lot of lawyer blaming during, uh, when he was asked about it at length. And he said, oh, that was the lawyers, that was the lawyers. So the lawyers knew about it and they, uh, and man knew about it and then they produced it to the jury anyway. Um, the judge has not been the strongest judge so far, but I was kind of very, very shocked to hear him say I was stunned. Yeah. And he was basically saying, help me here, help me um, remedy this because this is this is very serious. Well, he, he the word he used was homework. He, he said to the lawyers, you've got to go and do some homework because right now I've got a big question about this damages aspect. And and um, and it was man's lawyer that wanted a, an extension on the homework assignment. The judge wanted it by Thursday morning at like 8, 9 a.m. or whatever. Mm. And then man wanted until like, you know, the end of the day, Friday. And I think they met somewhere in the middle. So mm. uh, hopefully, I think the judge will review that over the weekend and we'll, we'll have a finding. But, uh, you know, this was supposed to be done on Wednesday. I'm not optimistic of this, despite how firm the judge was on it. But uh, we'll continue to listen to the updates. Climate change on trial. Phenomenal podcast. You've been doing great work on there. And I, I should obviously point out the obvious. Uh, we don't just happen to have the same chair. Uh, you and I, we are uh, in the same hotel right now. And uh, but I, I didn't want to like have this weird, awkward, like sitting beside each other, staring at yes. my laptop. So it, it from a production perspective, made more sense to uh, to do yes. this virtually, even though you're like 100 feet from me, probably. Probably, yes. No, but yeah. um, it's uh, look, uh, the judge has not been the strongest judge, but yeah. I've never seen him uh, as upset. Uh, about anything as as the, the fake document, and that it's going to be very interesting on Monday. Uh, what what the upshot is? Yeah, very well said. Climate change on trial. Do listen. Keep that up in the leaderboard on uh, all of the podcast services, and it is a very entertaining and enjoyable listen. And uh, when Caleb and I have these chats, if you've been following along in the podcast, you won't have as much uh, catch up to do and, and homework of your own to to know what we're talking about in some of these things. Caleb McAleer, thank you so much, and send my best to Anne. We'll see you back in court. Thanks, Andrew. All the best. All right. Thank you. That was Phelan McAleer, one of the uh, duo behind Climate Change on Trial and lots of other uh, great projects as well. I wanted to continue along by uh, talking about this just very briefly here because I I've had some uh, people email, a lot of people email actually, and, and say thank you for talking about this. But what was fascinating is that so many people followed along with this trial back when it first came up, like 2012, 2013, 2014. And it used to be much bigger. You had National Review, which is a, a big American, well, it used to be big. It's not a, as big anymore. Uh, but they were in there because that was where Mark Stein's blog post was published. And Competitive Enterprise Group, a conservative think tank in the US, that was where Rand Simberg's blog post was published. So uh, Michael Mann was motivated by a desire, and he put this in writing actually, to take down National Review. He wanted to bankrupt the organization. So uh, talk about malice. <laughs> that was where we saw uh, a level of malice was in kind of the motivation behind this lawsuit. And and a lot of people, when whenever this had come up, were like, oh yeah, that thing's still going on because you don't think this is going to be a dozen years. And look, no matter what happens in the course of this week, 
I know that this is going to go one way or another to the DC Court of Appeals. So that's going to take a, another year, two years, who knows? And then beyond that, maybe it goes to the Supreme Court or they have all the, I don't actually know how the American legal, no one knows how the American legal system works. They have all these like Seventh Circuit, Ninth Circuit. I don't, I don't know how any of that works, but I know that there is a multi-level process. It's going to be appealed. It's going to be appealed beyond that. And at a certain point, uh, this, the only one who comes out the winner is the lawyer. I, I mentioned with, with Phelan, I should point out, uh, Abraham Weiner. He, he's an expert witness. Expert witnesses are compensated very handily for it. He had testified that he was being paid like $750 an hour and had made like $100,000 from this uh, from this case. And Michael Mann's lawyer was trying to bring that up to like, you know, make him look bad in front of the jury. But if I were him, I would have just turned back to the lawyer and said, well, how much have you made from this case, sir? But uh, then I also would have had uh, one of those motion to strike and the jury would have been told to disregard it. And you, you can't be too sassy when you are testifying in court, I've learned. But uh, in any event, it is Monday. And what we do every Monday is we check in with our good friend, Chris Sims, who is the Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I mean, the carbon tax, you and I have called it uh, tongue-in-cheek, the gift that keeps on giving because it just keeps on giving content. But uh, evidently, our content has been working because the Liberals are trying to give it a little refresh, a little rebrand. They're uh, trying to put lipstick on a, a pig here. What on earth is happening? It's pretty funny. And your term has been used a lot in politics. And what I love about this is that it's been used a lot with the carbon tax. In fact, it was former provincial NDP leader in British Columbia, Carol James, who called the notion of a revenue neutral carbon tax lipstick on a pig. This is way back in the olden days, Andrew, when the NDP didn't like the carbon tax. I, I'm old enough to remember that. So it's really funny to see this phrase coming back to bite them because that's exactly what they're trying to do. This is how it goes. Okay. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government has this big honking ugly carbon tax and he's quadrupling the thing within the next seven years or so. We peasants though, Andrew, are too stupid to understand just how wonderful and beneficial this carbon levy is. And so in their magnanimity, the Trudeau government has now decided to go back to their little whiteboard and figure out a way to rebrand the carbon tax and especially its heavenly rebates. So they're going to try to figure out a way to try to bamboozle people. I don't know what they're going to call the rebate now, like super stardust fancy rebate something, uh, double plus good, who knows? So all this is to say they're going to be spending taxpayers' money, probably talking to a bunch of consultants and lobbyists to put their heads together how to resell the carbon tax and the rebates to Canadians. When the facts are, the math speaks for itself, the parliamentary budget officer has figured out that the average Canadian family, especially here in Alberta, will be out more than $900 this year in 2024 with the rebates factored in. That's net because of the carbon tax. So people aren't dumb. They know that this is emptying their wallets. They know that this is basically a tax on everything, but the Trudeau government is uh, undeterred. <laughs> They're going to try to polish this one.
Yeah, and, and look, I mean, uh, sales, marketing, advertising, communications, all of these have a place. They're all valuable. But uh, the one thing you should always do as a bit of an introspection activity whenever you are thinking you need a rebrand is wonder whether people are aware of the policy and dislike it on its merits. And that's the thing here. I mean, it's one area to say, okay, well, people don't really understand this. So we're going to, you know, sell it to them so that they understand it. In this case, the reason people don't like it is because they understand it, because they see how much it's costing them. So in that case, any rebrand is just going to be lying. Yeah, exactly. The call is coming from inside the house, folks. This is the problem. And it's one of these things where you see, no matter which government is in power, which party is in power, quite often if they stay in government this long, they can just really become ensconced in their bubble. They become tone deaf. They stop listening to what us average worker drones are doing and saying, and they start believing their own spin. And this is exactly what's happening in Ottawa with this idea of, oh, well, we just need to explain it to these dum-dums better, and then <laughs> they will love us all again. It reminds me of that meme that they use for Principal Skinner all the time from The Simpsons. It's like, you know, am I wrong? No, definitely it's the children. That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about this other thing. I hadn't heard of this until you brought it up. Something called a wing night mutiny. Now, I love wings. I don't love mutiny as much, but uh, if there are enough wings, I can tolerate the mutiny. What's the wing night mutiny? Yeah, I'm just full disclosure, a huge fan of chicken wings myself. If you ever go to a restaurant with me, you'll wind up with like this goblin pile of bones in front of me. Right? <laughs> so I think this is important. So this is funny. The city of Calgary following suit with the city of Edmonton, which is much more docile, except for their hockey team. Um, the city of Edmonton took this lying down a few months ago, but the city of Calgary, boy, they're not taking this. What this is, is there's now a 15 cent mandatory tax per paper bag. There's a dollar mandatory municipal tax per reusable bag. Those ones that fill up all of our under sink cabinets and in our trunks. Um, the idea of plastic single use bags, like that's right out. Right, because Prime Minister Trudeau banned those things. So, but here in Calgary, it wasn't just the bags. They actually put forward this new law and enforced it, saying you now must beg slash plead for a napkin when you're at a restaurant or a wooden fork. Please, Mayor Gondek, may I have a fork or utensil to eat my, my meal? So... It's redonkulous because this local government is like, we're going to save the world by making people ask for napkins. And so Premier Daniel Smith had a really funny line. She said, yeah, this almost caused a week wing night mutiny. <laughs> so we're picturing people just revolting in pubs across Canada and like flinging their chicken wings at people. I don't know if that happened. I have not yet heard reports, but wing night mutiny became a thing. And that actually helped energize uh, local politicians. Some of the city councillors on Calgary City Hall, it kind of gave them the, the courage to speak up and to say, you know what, this is stupid. We shouldn't have a 15 cent bag tax. It's going to be 25 cents next year. And we shouldn't be nuisancing people to death on things like Forks and napkins, for goodness sake, stick to your knitting, City Hall. So this really gave uh, city councillors around Calgary City Hall table the courage to speak up and to say, you know what, we shouldn't be nickel and diming people to death with nuisance taxes, like dumb things like these bag taxes. And we certainly shouldn't, as mayor, be telling people whether or not they can have napkins. Like, that's so dumb. And so 
what's really interesting here is that now this could cascade into Edmonton. The folks of Edmonton might now find their voice because the people of Calgary have spoken up, but it's not over yet. In Calgary, they still need to email their counselors. They yeah. still need to phone the mayor's office. See, stuff like this, though, is infuriating for not just because I, I too, like chicken wings, but uh, be, because <laughs> it's the kind of thing that people pretend is little and people yeah. pretend is small. They say, oh, what's the big deal? They still have napkins. You just have to ask for them. But it really speaks to an attitude issue here, because when government is regulating things so small, and so seemingly insignificant, it's licensing government to regulate the big things, to regulate the giant things. And at a certain point, it's going to be where I literally, this would not be far off to believe where governments mandate cloth napkins, yep. uh, where governments mandate cloth napkins. And all of a sudden your crappy hole in the wall diner has to have linen, like it's a, you know, a Michelin star restaurant or whatever, because that's what the government has decreed. And that's, I think the problem here is that when you license government to encroach on something like this, you're giving it a, a power that will only expand and balloon, just like the carbon tax has increased and ballooned. Yes, exactly. The carbon tax started at, oh, it's only, you know, it's only $10 per ton. Well, it's going to be $170 per ton pretty soon, folks. It used to cost you about 50 cents in the carbon tax. Pretty soon it's going to be costing you $20 every single time you fill up with the carbon tax. And you really nailed, nailed it here, Andrew, because we can even give you an example of how quickly this can escalate. So in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, they still have their bag tax, yes, but they did have to climb down on this weird cup tax. I don't know if you heard about this, but I was living next to Vancouver when this all happened, so it was pretty crazy. So the city of Vancouver, along with their bag fee, also imposed this weird cup tax so that every single time you went to a coffee shop or a gas station or some mom and pop corner store, and you dared use a disposable paper cup, they were charging you an extra 25 cents. Where did that quarter go? It didn't go to the city. So where was it going? I phoned them and asked them. This was the plan. They wanted to force all of these stores to collect these quarters, save them all up, because in the very near future, the city of Vancouver was going to ban all disposable or single-use cups. Every single one of them would not be allowed within the city limits. How are we to drink coffee, you ask? They actually wanted to force Vancouverites to share a communal pool of cups. I'm not kidding. And the money that these businesses were being forced to collect was supposed to go to a dishwasher so that now these businesses would be responsible for washing everybody's cup that has been, you know, in their backpack on SkyTrain for a week or under their truck seat or whatever. Yeah. Just imagine, imagine hundreds of thousands of people being forced, adults, to force to share this group of cups. It was so weird that they actually had to back down. But again, <laughs> this is what happens when you give wow. them that inch. Yeah, no, very well said. It'd be like the Stanley Cup craze in the, uh, I think it's mostly in the US now, those like, I don't even oh. get the Stanley Cup craze. It's not even a hockey thing. It's like some, there's some like weird, like reusable cup that everyone is uh, like going crazy over. And it's like, it's just a reusable mug. So I don't yeah. know. Stanley, was... actually there's a Stanley Park in BC, isn't there? It's the Stanley Park Cups, we'll say. Yes, I would like to think that, or I'd like to think it's a hockey thing. But what's really funny is that 
in actual fact, like Stanley, the company has been around forever. It's like thermos, right? It's yeah. almost become synonymous with something that keeps your, your coffee hot. And like working men at like construction sites have had these things in their trucks forever. But for some reason, these big pink ones took off. And I don't know. Some pretty You know what? Uh, the liberal government there. should hire the Stanley marketing team to do their carbon tax rebrand. <laughs> Uh, because clearly they've managed to uh, to do something pretty good on their own rebrand over at Stanley. It looks like a shade of lipstick. You know, that was yeah, like... there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris Sims, we will talk to you next Monday. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. That was the lovely and wonderful Chris Sims. Uh, just keeping with the carbon tax theme here, you'll no doubt be aware by now we are on this show doing a new series called Unjust Transition. We are talking about the uh, liberal government's so-called just transition and how it is, in fact, a war on the oil and gas sector. We've been doing this by sitting down with oil and gas CEO and a mining guy, too. We had, we had the token miner, uh, but mostly oil and gas CEOs talking about what their industry is doing, what they are doing and what they wish the government and Canadians would know about. So today I wanted to turn to Ron Gusick, who is the president of Liberty Energy. And I should say, I was a bit sick or coming off of a, a bit of a prolonged illness when we did these interviews. So the audio uh, was a little, and the audio, there's also an audio issue. So when I was listening to it, I didn't know if it was the audio issue or just my own obnoxious grating post-illness voice or a bit of both. So uh, nevertheless, this was my interview with Ron Gusick. I'm joined by Ron Gusick of Liberty Energy, president of that company. Just before we get into some of the policy aspects here, what does your company do? So Liberty's a North America-wide oil field services company, primarily focused on hydraulic fracturing. So wireline services, uh, hydraulic fracturing being our core business, uh, also in the space around uh, mobile power generation and uh, supplying natural gas to run that power generation as well. So for... I mean, you're, you're connected to a lot of the other players in this. You're uh, servicing a lot of them. And, and what have you seen just in the last decade as far as trends in the industry goes? And I'd say overall optimism and confidence in the industry. Yeah, a lot to unpack in that question. Uh, certainly been a real migration in terms of where the industry has been focused. And maybe it's a little bit more than a decade. But certainly in about that time frame, you've seen this real transition into development of unconventional resources. We've gone from, you know, where, where I started in my career 25 years ago, a very conventional world of vertical wells, a lot of them to access the reservoir to these uh, extended reach horizontal wells with hydraulic fracturing in them. Uh, and we can produce a massive amount of resource from a very small footprint on surface, enabled by really two technologies, horizontal drilling and, and hydraulic fracturing of that. We've seen the completion evolve a fair bit there. We've seen the technology on surface that enables that evolve a fair bit. Lots of moving pieces there. There's obviously been a fair bit of innovation in this industry, just from a technological perspective alone. How much of that has really come from Canada and Canadian enterprise? Certainly a lot of great things have happened here. Canada has been at the tip of the spear, I think, from, uh, from a development standpoint with regards to technology for decades in the oil and gas space. I, th I think we hold ourselves to a very high standard in Canada. We, we are leaders in, um, I would say, the regulatory environment around how we produce oil and gas. I think we have a, um, a great suite of responsible producers here who strive to be 
the best at what they do. And as a result, that means we've always been at the, at the tipping, at the tip of the spear with regards to the technology we use to do that. And so mm -hmm. I think Canada should be proud of themselves in that, whether it's, you know, unconventional gas development or heavy oil development across that whole suite, I think we've got a lot to be proud of. And your company has, you said, well over 5,000 employees it is, right? What's the, I mean, what's the profile of that, of those employees? So the vast majority of those people are out in the field working 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to provide services to E&P companies. Um, you know, if you thought about our employee base, I guess 90% of them are out at the tip of the spear hmm. uh, providing that level of service every day. And so when you think about that kind of work, like these are people who are outside uh, either day shift or night shift. So 12 hours at a time, whatever the weather might be, it doesn't matter if it's minus 40 or plus 45 outside they're they're outside um working on a well site to uh to bring energy to us so when you hear the government and a lot of uh you know ngos use language like the just transitioners the so-called just transitioners i've been talking about this idea of moving the economy and the workforce to what they call low carbon they're talking about those people they're, they're talking about those people and those jobs in a future where those jobs don't exist so how does that weigh on you as the president of a company in this space that has to plan for the future? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one for me to think about. Uh, first of all, because I, I disagree with the premise. Uh, you know, I certainly expect that we're going to be using oil and gas for <laughs> decades to come yet. And I think there's a lot of great data to support that. But I also think about it just in terms of what opportunity we provide to those people. You know, the vast majority of the people who work in our company, who work out there at the tip of the spear, they're high school graduates. Some of them have some specialized expertise, maybe an electronics technician, maybe a mechanic, um, something like that. But a lot of them, just a high school diploma. And we've offered them an opportunity to live a life that they might not otherwise have expected to. We just finished filming a video actually called A Day in the Life. And, and it's just a bit of a purview around what it looks like to work in the industry. And there are some heartwarming stories in that of people whose life looks so much different than they anticipated it might have been because of a job in oil and gas. Our employees work two weeks on, two weeks off in the field. So they work 26 weeks of the year and they will earn, mm. you know, once they get to a supervisory level, certainly a six-figure income. That's, that's not something you find easily. And, and it's a life-changing experience for these people. I don't think that's easily replaced. And so I have a really hard time with this idea of a just transition. Well, and I'm glad you brought it up that way. Now, I mean, critics of, of that position would say that, well, you know, we, you know, the jobs can be transitioned and they'll be moved away or whatever. But I, I think you have to go back to the first principle and, and the very premise on which that rests. And that premise is based on, I would say, a very misinformed or ill-informed view of, of what the sector is and, and how a lot of these innovations that we were talking about are really achieving from the industry's perspective, the stated goals from the government's perspective. So explain how that is. Yeah, I, you know, certainly I, I, I think we have an incredibly innovative industry and, and I, you know, the way I like to think about it is the oil and gas industry delivers a dollar's worth of benefit and we do a nickel or dime's worth of damage hmm. along the way. And so if you're always prepared to contemplate the trade-offs, but honestly weigh the pros and cons, you come out in favor of oil and gas each and every time. Hmm. And so that's important for me to remind our employees about. I want them to get out of bed each and every day excited about what they do and proud about what they go to work doing. And so that's part of our mandate to them is to help them understand that, that what they do for the world is, is quite literally life-changing. And, um, it, it, but the, at the same point in time, we have that nickel or dime's worth of damage and it's incumbent upon us as a company to do everything we can to minimize that. 
and not just us as a company, but us as a broader industry. Mm -hmm. And it's so we count on our employees, on that, that team of people out there to find ways to innovate, to move the ball forward, to make sure that the next molecule of gas we produce is, is done a little more responsibly than the previous molecule mm -hmm. of gas we produce. And, and I think you can see a, a continued stream of evidence around technological advancements that demonstrate we've done exactly that as an industry. Well, and to take that metaphor a little bit further, if, if we accept, which I, I think there's ample reason to, that the demand exists and that the demand is not going anywhere, someone has to provide that supply. And I don't think anyone could argue that the nickel or dime's worth of damage that you say that may exist in a Canadian context from Canadian companies is going to be uh, anything but dwarfed by what other suppliers will do. And, you know, maybe it's a quarter's worth of damage somewhere else or 50 cents. So, and that's the fundamental reality here is that it's a, a much safer bet to invest and rely on Canadian energy. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to think about it. If, you, you know, we often view things through the lens of a billion people who live the way that you and I enjoy mm -hmm. our life. And, and that's unfortunate because there are 7 billion people who don't. And so the very simple math that I like to think about when we have this conversation around the demand for energy is, look, we have a billion people who averaged across them. So this is North America, Western Europe, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Those people on average use 13 barrels of oil per person per year. Uh, so we have a billion who live in that world. We have 7 billion people who averaged across all of them have access to or use three barrels of oil per person per year. And so if you think about this idea that even if we reduced our consumption by three barrels of oil per person per year, and they raise their consumption by three barrels of oil per person per year, demand is growing massively over the coming decades. And, and so if we accept that that's a reasonable premise, that there's going to be a massive uh, growth in demand for energy such that everybody in the world has access to the type of life or something closer to the life that you and I enjoy, then the question becomes, where should that energy come from? And we're 100% behind the idea, uh, exactly as you espoused, is that if it's going to come from someplace, it should come from Canada. Mm -hmm. we, produce, we produce the lowest impact molecule of gas or barrel of oil that can be found anywhere in the world and do so incredibly responsibly. And we have an immense amount of people who benefit from that, both directly in the industry and economically in the country. And so why would we choose to do it anyplace else? Yeah, that's that's not even a nationalistic argument. It's, it's an environmental argument. It's an economic argument. It's all of that. Well, a fascinating subject. Your perspective on that, I think, puts it into context for a lot of people. Ron Gusick of Liberty Energy, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks very much. If you want to support the work we're doing, you can do so at donate.tnc.news. And we're so grateful to all of you for your support. Uh, the fun continues tomorrow and the rest of the week here on The Andrew Lawton Show at True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.